0: Oh. Today Ice Coffee Episode 15 sees us look at some preliminary work leading up to one of the great exploration confluences in Antarctic waters, wherein French, American and British expeditions each attempt to further their national interests and scientific knowledge with varying degrees of success. These expeditions, coming as they did at the tail end of the sealing industry in Antarctic waters and 30 years before the invention of the harpoon gun, which would open up fisheries for the faster less buoyant wool whales, marked the end of a busy period in Antarctic exploration, and while each added information to the existing charts, a complete picture of the continent still lay an entire century away from these projects. When we last checked in with American newspaper man, Jeremiah Reynolds, members of the South Sea Fur Company and Exploring Expedition left him behind in Valparaiso in September 1831. Some accounts simply state he was left behind in a hasty departure but others mention near mutiny leading to his parting from the party. A year later he found passage home aboard the Potomac a US Navy brig commanded by John Downs on its way home from a visit to Sumatra where it exacted revenge on a local potentate who'd seized a US merchant ship and killed several of its crew. On the way home Perhaps inspired by the role the Potomac played in expressing U.S. foreign policy, Reynolds wrote an account of his Antarctic voyage, highlighting the need to fly the Stars and Stripes worldwide to let everyone know how awesome the land of the free is, and critiqued the efforts of whalers and sealers from England and the newly minted nation of Argentina in the Falkland Islands. Both nations were trying to claim the islands as their own, but combined their forces in giving U.S. ships as cold a shoulder as they could manage. Reynolds called for an expression of US sovereignty over the Falklands, but was never heeded. Ensuring the war 150 years later was a two- instead of a three-way affair. Reynolds' account, in company with Edmund Fanning's broader work, Voyages Around the World, sparked increased public interest in the notional wealth allegedly on offer in the South Seas. Biscoe was only arriving back in London at the time Fanning's account of the South Sea Fur Company Exploring Expedition reached the publishers, and the evidence Biscoe brought to light went largely ignored. The continental model of Antarctica wasn't about to come back into favour any time soon, and Fanning, convinced following in Weddell's wet tracks could only result in the discovery of new lands or a visit to the Pole, offered to help fund a second US voyage of exploration, or a first depending on how you view the efforts of the South Sea Fur Company in exploring expedition. Reynolds, among others, including many ship owners and captains who risked their lives and their livelihoods in poorly charted waters, called on Congress to underwrite a new expedition to explore southern waters. The House of Representatives, impressed by Reynolds' accounts of the scale of the whaling and sealing industries, Saw the value in fixing the location of islands suitable to act as refuges to crews in need of safe anchorage. John Downs, captain of the Potomac, added his voice to the call, citing the waters adjacent to Palmer Land or Graham Land or the Antarctic Peninsula, depending on whose charts you examine, as likely home to many unskinned fur seals. Downs made much of the potential for British interests to oust US interests, and with Reynolds notes about the Falklands fresh off the press, and John Biscoe in the South as the issue was thrashed out in the USA, the threat to American interests was taken very seriously. As news of Biscoe's discoveries spread, the name Graham Land became a lever for Reynolds interests, where Americans, fanning particularly, saw Palmer as the rightful namesake of the land he sighted. Palmer made no landing and performed no claiming ceremony. Lame as raising a flag, firing a volley and toasting the head of state might seem, compared to the nothing that secretive American sealers did to establish some form of sovereignty over the lands they saw, the lameness of claiming ceremonies constituted a pretty firm legal grip on the continent. Not only was the opportunity to claim the land fast slipping from the American purview, even an established American name on the landmass became contested after a single landing. With no American ever claiming a landing, the Brits were looking pretty solidly ashore as far as these things go in the seal rush days. With the economy of New England largely dependent on whaling, Connecticut whaling interests added their voice to the call for a government funded exploratory expedition. ...and for naval protection of their vessels in southern waters in 1836. Samuel Southard, by then a senator, also gave the initiative his support. The Senate heeded the multiple voices raised in support of the voyage... ...and a bill passed on to the House of Representatives for consideration. Reynolds took up an opportunity to speak to an audience of congressmen and their guests... ...and pulled out all stops to paint a picture of economic opportunities of a national duty to further human knowledge, and of spreading the beneficent aegis of the USA across the globe. And they could steal a march on the British, who were faffing about in the north, looking for the Northwest Passage. Reynolds proposed an expedition led by a well-armed naval vessel, an expedition at an unprecedented scale, to affirm US interests in the south, so recently called into question by the upstart, Biscoe, Reynolds' rhetoric found fertile ground in Congress. While careful to eschew any mention of pole holes and concentric spheres, Reynolds did posit a visit to the poll and staved off potential concerns about the mooted shortage of commercial opportunities that far south by citing the need to project an impression of America as more than a mercantile nation, thereby forestalling any potential rebuke along such lines by embittered competing national interests. Reynolds conjured a vision of the Stars and Stripes waving at the sight of a difficult achievement to cajole enthusiasm from an audience, though by now, Biscoe's discovery should have diminished any enthusiasm for the Polar Sea concept more than they did. Reynolds' skill as a speaker is evidenced by Congress' approval of a six-vessel expedition headed up by a naval frigate. After ten years of advocacy, Reynolds stood on the verge of making his dreams a reality, but Southern's replacement as Secretary of the Navy, Marlon Dickerson, an opponent of the project, now backed by Edmund Fanning, with whom Reynolds had fallen out, posited that the expedition would require at least 12 months to get organised. Scientists slated to join the expedition advocated hard on Reynolds' behalf, and President Andrew Jackson, now a supporter, told Dickerson to ensure Reynolds was appointed Corresponding Secretary to the expedition but Reynolds wanted to lead the expedition, not just collate the reports it generated. Andrew Jackson put pressure on Dickerson to get a move on, and he did so by sending Lieutenant Charles Wilkes to London to purchase books, charts and scientific instruments, but Dickerson also threw a spanner in the works by appointing Wilkes commander of one of the vessels. In naval etiquette, A politician appointing a commander without consulting the squadron commander is a big faux pas and Captain Jones raised sufficient stink about this circumventing of his authority that Dickerson had to cede some ground but preparation continued at a snail's pace. Newly elected President Martin Van Buren encouraged by Dickerson called for an inquiry into the size of the project. Determined this expedition should not suffer the whittling doom of the previous one Reynolds published a pseudonymous essay castigating Dickerson for putting at risk America's primacy in the South by his stalling tactics. Dickerson responded in pseudonymous kind with a series of letters to the New York Times promulgating the rumour, which may have held some truth, that naval officers were increasingly wary of serving on the expedition, perceiving it as the hobby of an individual more so than the project in the national interests. Dickerson played on Reynolds' previous enthusiasm for Sim's Hollow Earth Hypothesis, and his current enthusiasm for flying the flag at the pole. Why risk sailors' lives reaching some inaccessible point simply for the sake of pride? Reynolds, with considerable public support on his side, and with a newly announced French expedition adding urgency to the endeavour, maintained sufficient government support to see the project gradually assemble its resources but the refitting of the ships burnt through the available funds and more money was needed to victual the expedition. Dickerson called for a second inquiry into the scale of the undertaking, seeking to discredit Reynolds while not catching any blame himself for the French stealing a march on national interests in the South. Keen to see the increasingly embarrassing and expensive mess get underway, President Van Buren passed responsibility for it from Dickerson to his Secretary of War... Joel Poinsett, who didn't like Reynolds or his project any better than Dickerson did. Poinsett placed Lieutenant Charles Wilkes in charge of the whole expedition and employed Wilkes' family connections to try to have Reynolds excluded from the voyage. This, in addition to other meddlesome ploys among the officers, saw Captain Jones become so infuriated with Poinsett that he resigned from command of the squadron. Poinsett slashed the budget, Scientific staff, including James Eights, mentioned in episode 13 as the first official Antarctic naturalist and the first person to report fossil evidence of large plants in the Antarctic, were let go. Reynolds, still backed by many politicians and members of the public, proposed he be allowed a berth at his own expense, but the offer to pay his way was rebuffed. The six ships departed in August 1838. Reynolds was left ashore where he drifted from the limelight and entirely out of the narrative of this series, other than when I note that he lived another 20 years, publishing a few more books and dying at the age of 59 in New York. It's just as Wilkes leaves port, we'll split the narrative and take a look at developments in Old Blighty, because there's a bunch of stuff about to happen all at once. In the years Reynolds spent trying and failing to get the expedition of his dreams underway, James Clark Ross was earning his icy cachet in the Great White North. Ross's uncle, Sir John Ross, joined the Royal Navy at the age of nine. My own son is presently only a year shy of that mark, and the thought of him going to sea, even under the modern conditions in which I embark on research vessels, horrifies me. So things must have been pretty dire ashore for the odds-on option lying with the privations of life under sail in the 18th century. Sir John's nephew, James Clark Ross, began his naval career under his uncle's command at the relatively ripe age of 12. At the age of 18, in 1818, he served under Lieutenant William Edward Parry aboard the Alexander, while his uncle commanded the Isabella, leading an admiralty expedition to find the Northwest Passage for use as a shortcut between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. John Ross sailed to Lancaster Sound at the north end of Baffin Island, later recognised as the eastern end of the Northwest Passage. But to the chagrin of Parry and other senior officers, the senior Ross turned the expedition around. The dispute between John Ross and his subordinates saw Parry sail as commander of the next Admiralty attempt on the passage in 1819, aboard the HMS Heckler, leading the HMS Griper. This expedition carried 600 nautical miles past John Ross's furthest efforts, cementing Parry's reputation as the Northwest Passage man to beat, his distance record standing until the 1850s. With the Griper replaced by HMS Fury, Parry made two further explorations of the Arctic aboard the Heckler, with John Biscoe, a key figure in episode 14, James Clark Ross, a newcomer to the ice coffee fold, Francis Crozier from Northern Ireland, among his officers. During Parry's second expedition, 1821 to 1823, the ships wintered in the Arctic, during which time several sledging excursions helped expand Admiralty knowledge of local coasts. Parry's willingness to cooperate with the local Inuit gained invaluable insights into the local geography. Mutual respect between the ship's crews and the Inuit served parry shore parties well. European expeditions too arrogant to treat native Arcticans with any respect sometimes dipped out on the information and help that could mean the difference between life and death in high northern latitudes. As was noted in an early episode of the series, the presence of terrestrial predators in the Arctic acted as a selective pressure in favour of neophobic organisms those seals and rabbits and such that run and hide at the first sign of anything new or unusual, making hunting down your food in the Arctic a very different prospect to clubbing in different seals and curious penguins to death in the Antarctic. Many a proud European explorer starved to death or resorted to cannibalism for want of treating the locals well enough that they'd share their hard-won knowledge about how to be alive above the Arctic Circle. The ships wintered in the Arctic a second time during Parry's 1824-1825 expedition. Persistent ice prevented any further progress along the northwest passage. The fury was pinched against a lee shore by wind-driven pack ice and sufficiently damaged that the stores were put ashore and the crew transferred to the Hecla. In 1827, Parry headed north from Spitzbergen in an admiralty-supported attempt to reach the North Pole. Reaching 82 degrees 45 minutes north, Parry's attempt stood him as the northernmost human to have lived to tell their tale for half a century, and sealed his deal on a knighthood. John Ross, eager to redeem himself in the eyes of his naval superiors, mounted a private expedition funded by gin magnate Felix Booth in 1829 purchased for Ross a shallow draft steamer called Victory. Steam powered ships of the era used their boilers to turn side mounted paddle wheels. Usually useless in icy waters where the wheels would likely be torn off any time a ship came into contact with the pack, the Victory featured an ingenious mechanism by which the paddle wheels could be lifted clear of the water saving the machinery from damage. If you listen to the entire series You'll recognise the Victory's ingenuity as the first in a series of clever mechanical solutions to problems posed by ice that failed to do what it said on the box. The steam engine didn't hold up to the conditions it was expected to work under and the crew of the Victory dismantled the machinery, dumping it on a handy shore to save weight during their first winter above the Circle. James Clark Ross served under his uncle during this expedition and made several sledging journeys inland in company with the Inuit Guides. During one of these excursions in 1831, James Clark Ross reached the North Magnetic Pole. Following Edmund Halley's efforts in the 17th century, the next series of magnetic measurements of note were those of the scientific instrument maker George Graham in 1722. From over a thousand observations, Graham determined a rhythm in the swinging of his compass needles over time. His report to the Royal Society on the phenomenon added to Halley's spatial variation measurements of the previous century prompted German mathematician Carl Friedrich Gauss to entreat collaborative efforts to resolve the magnetic mysteries. Gauss's magnetic union received observations from dozens of stations using standardised equipment to measure the strength and direction of local magnetic fields. It was as part of the subsequent magnetic crusade, a British-led project Established to make synchronised magnetic observations worldwide, that James Clark Ross came to be chasing down the North Magnetic Pole with a Fox dip circle. Compass dip, the tendency for a compass needle to angle downward at its northern end in the Northern Hemisphere, was first noticed in 1544 by German instrument maker George Hartmann, whose only concern was to remove the artefact from his instruments by adjusting the weight distribution of the needle about its pivot. Thirty years later, English hydrographer Robert Norman began examining the phenomenon in earnest and devised a means to measure the angle of dip. Norman thought that dip was an artefact of the needles, but in 1600, William Gilbert, royal physician to Queen Elizabeth I, came to the idea that the earth contained the equivalent of a bar magnet and the compass needles aligned to the resulting magnetic fields in all dimensions dip circles could therefore be used as an additional mechanism for determining geographic positions by measuring the change in dip as the traveller approached or departed from the areas of greatest magnetic influence, where the lines of magnetic flux converge. For over two centuries, the instruments dedicated to this task were only of use on land. Robert Ware Fox's design for a dip circle usable at sea on a moving ship became available in the 1830s. One of Fox's dip circles features in John R. Wildman's portrait of James Clark Ross looking like a suave fuck, so closely did this instrument come to be associated with the man and his exploits. The victory spent four years in the Arctic. With no engine and continually fighting the ice, progress was slow, the crew often having to kedge their way out of trouble. Kedging is the use of an anchor to draw a ship into position. In the case of the victory in the Arctic, the crew would saw a path along the pack ice, haul an anchor along the sawn gap and drop the anchor in the water at the full extent of its warp. The crew then used the warp to winch the ship onto the anchor, allowing progress against the pack and in the absence of usable winds. This is a laborious way to get about, but better than allowing the ice to catch the ship against the shoreline or pinch it between floes. The Victory, shallow drafted and sailed by canny ice pilots though she was, became trapped by ice in Victoria Harbour during their third winter in the north and wasn't going anywhere. At the end of their third winter, the crew lowered their boats onto the ice and prepared to haul them to Fury Bay, site of the wreck of the Fury, which isn't a coincidence because the bay was named after the ship. There they could resupply from what Parry's party had left on the beaches. James Clark Ross scouted ahead of the main party and returned with the good news that the Fury's boats could be repaired to Seaworthy, so the crew were spared the task of hauling their own boats over the ice. Once repaired and stocked, three of the Fury's boats sailed in search of open water and hopefully rescued by a whaler. After a month on the move, they faced impenetrable pack. They waited three weeks for the congested waters to open up a little, but to no avail. The crew returned to Fury Bay and settled in for their fourth winter in the north. Leaving their final winter quarters on July 8th, 1833, the crew made for the head of Prince Regent Inlet. They saw a ship on the 26th of August, but it didn't see them. The second ship came into view, Parry's former command, the Isabella. It spotted them and came to their relief. The expedition returned to London in October eighteen thirty three, short three crew who died during the four year absence. The Admiralty, impressed by their feats and hearty example of British hard as nailsness, granted all hands double pay for the entire four year period, despite no one being on the Navy's books at the time. The entire nation revelled in the heroic scale of their achievements, and much mileage was made of the scientific findings. Wave that flag, I mean. <coughs> Look, science! John Ross received the knighthood and a brace of gongs from various scientific societies, while nephew James Clark Ross received a promotion to captain and in early eighteen thirty six headed north on an admiralty mission to relieve stranded British whale ships in Baffin Bay, the area he now knew better than most mariners. For James Clark Ross, Much of the rest of the 1830s was taken up in a magnetic survey of Great Britain with Edward Sabine, but in 1839 his experience in ice pilotage and magnetic surveying landed him the leadership of the most ambitious magnetic expedition to date. The Royal Navy, at the behest of the Royal Society, largely at the behest of naval hydrographer Francis Beaufort, he of the wind scale, Ross would command the HMS Erebus while his arctic companion, Francis Crozier, would sail in the HMS Terra in search of the South Magnetic Pole and a good job they'd make of it too. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, just a few miles away, 17 years ago, later that very same day, and you can write to me and claim your prize for being the first person to tell me where I dredged that little piece of musical arcana from, France was also making preparations to head south. In the early 19th century the French Navy was pretty shabby and what ships were seaworthy were mostly blockaded by the British. Jules-Sebastien de Mont-Deville joined this rundown edifice at the age of 17 with little interest in glory through battle but a head full of the heroic accounts of exploration in the preceding century. De Ville was smart, heading his class and graduating as an Enzyme in 1811, he studied astronomy, geology entomology and botany and became fluent in six second languages. Sailing the Mediterranean in 1821 as part of a hydrographic survey of the Black Sea, de Vere happened upon an ancient Greek marble nearly unearthed by a peasant on the island of Milos. De Vere sought and received permission from his superiors to purchase the sculpture. The various conflicting versions of how the statue came to light and came to lack arms are all fascinating but hold little bearing on Antarctic exploration and so I won't attempt to fathom out what actually happened and simply note that De Vere's first taste of fame came with his canny nabbing of the Venus de Milo now on display in the Louvre. In 1822, De Vere was promoted to lieutenant and assigned to the vessel Coquille, to serve under his friend Louis Isidore Dupree and sailed to survey parts of the South Atlantic and South Pacific and the west coast of New Holland, now the site of Perth, Australia. Dupree and De Ville performed well during the 31-month voyage and the charts and scientific publications arising from their efforts gave De Ville the credibility he needed to convince the French Admiralty to grant him command of the refurbished Coquille, renamed Astrolabe, which he sailed around the world in 1826, making many discoveries and charts on his way. Returning after three years, accusations of harsh leadership and questions over the veracity of some of his claims meant De Vere didn't enjoy the same lavish level of cachet as his previous circumnavigation garnered, and he languished in Toulon for seven years, promoted to captain but with no ship to command. In 1837, De Vere put forward a proposal for a small exploratory expedition among the Pacific Islands, and his document found its way before King Louis-Philippe. Aware of Waddell's 1823 efforts, eager to extend French influence in the south, and alert to British and American intentions to further explore Antarctic waters, the King decided not only to grant De Vere command of the astrolabe once more, but added a second ship to his command, the Zélie, and decreed that De Vere should fulfil his goals in the Pacific after sailing as far south as the ice permitted. The King promised the crew a 100 gold francs each if the ships achieved 75 degrees south, thereby surpassing Waddell's furthest effort and an additional 20 francs for each degree of latitude attained beyond that mark. While this royal intervention rescued the 46-year-old De Vere from his career doldrums in Toulon, The requirement to sail so far south applied a lot of pressure. The ships were slipped and resheathed with copper sheeting, but this delayed departure to the 7th of September 1837, and with a long transit ahead of them, before they even began to dance with the ice, De Ville was less than thrilled. Any attempt to breach the ice needed an early summer start, and the delays forced the expedition to cut this very fine. But more on that in the next episode. Last cap off the rank in this episode will be the first in the next, as we follow the progress of the Astrolabe and the Zelie. While all this occurred in the northern hemisphere, John Balleny, skippering the Endeavour schooner Eliza Jane, and in company with Thomas Freeman, in charge of the Cutter Sabrina, was looking for sealing grounds in the Ross Sea in 1838 and 1839. Balleny, like Cook and Smith before him learnt his trade sailing colliers in the North Sea, with little experience of working in ice. Fortunately for Baligny and his crews, in sailing down the 175th Eastern Meridian, they discovered a partially clear passage through the sea ice. Oceanographic conditions in the Baligny Corridor conspire to offer the least ice-strewn route to what later became known as the Ross Sea. The corridor aided almost everyone who sought fame, that is... Who sought to further human scientific endeavor in the Ross Sea region and is still used today by vessels visiting the coast of Antarctica south of New Zealand? Baloney's published notes on this corridor played a decisive role in James Clark Ross's decision to attempt to reach high latitudes between 170 and 180 degrees east. Here's a coincidence for you 180 degrees east overlaps exactly for the entire length of the meridian. With one hundred eighty degrees west, what are the odds? Baloney experienced some troubles in his travels. With past exploratory expeditions turning little profit, the enderbys couldn't outfit the Eliza Jane, a re tasked pleasure yacht, as well as might have been desired. Some of the water casks used to ballast the Eliza Jane were leaking, and the resulting instability made for very uncomfortable transits and the lively motion of the ship in open water caused many scientific measurement series to be abandoned until less fraught conditions prevailed. bally a pious man, caused some friction among his crew, who resented the cut of his religious services and shipboard industrial disputes appear to have marred morale. Sailing the Eliza Jane and the Sabrina slightly further south than Cook reached in the Naples Ultra incident, Baliny discovered a series of volcanic islands that now bear his name, and a stretch of coast that we now call Sabrina Land in memory of the crew of the Sabrina, who were lost at sea on the return journey. With all other landings occurring on the northern extension of, or islands lying off, the Antarctic Peninsula, Baliny's landing on one of the islands he discovered marks he and his crew out as the first to step ashore below the Antarctic Circle. And so, with Balleny's expedition returning to England short one Cutter and its crew, episode 15 comes to an end. I've now got two patrons signed up to the Ice coffee Patreon. Welcome Aaron, to whom I owe an apology. Aaron was one of the first people to comment on the blog, and I wrote that I'd give him a shout out in the following episode, but being at the slowest phase of episode production to date, this commitment fell off the radar and rolled under the couch. So thanks Aaron for taking the time to comment. The music used in opening and closing out this episode is Argonaut by New Zealand band Bail to Space. I began seeking permission to use this snippet when the ideas for the series first began to coalesce. It's the quietest and most melodious track produced by the band who are noted for their wall of sound sound emanating from an actual wall of amplifiers. I recommend their live performances but I also recommend taking ear protection. This music, in addition to its inherent musical properties, holds a lot of nostalgia value to me. Dr Paul Bruin, my on-site mentor in how to be in Antarctica, and now my long-distance friend living in the Falklands, introduced me to the marine-themed wonders of the piece while we shared an office at the Portobello Marine Labs. It takes me to the same mind state I experience while waiting at the back of a surf break for my wave and the mental state achieved after weeks at sea described by Joseph Conrad in On Youth wherein you feel you could carry on sailing forever. It's used here with tremendous respect for the people who wrote, performed and produced it. I wanted at least one episode to sound exactly as I imagined it and this is my attempt to achieve that vision. Take care all... And appreciate your coffee.